Heavenly Father, today we put on the full armor to protect us against attack. We put on the belt of truth to protect against lies and deception. We put on the breastplate of righteousness to protect our hearts from the temptations. We put the gospel of peace on our feet to walk in your light, peace, and freedom with the Holy Spirit. We rebuke anxious thoughts. We take up your shield of faith for protection to block and destroy all the darts and threats thrown at us by the enemy. We put on the helmet of salvation to cover our minds and thoughts, reminding us that we are children of a mighty king. We are forgiven, set free, safe by the blood of Jesus. We take up the sword of the spirit, your living word that has the power to demolish strongholds and is sharper than any double-edged sword. We come to you, Lord, in prayer daily. In Jesus' mighty name, we pray. Amen. Amen. What's up, you guys? Welcome to The Imagination. I'm your host, Emma, and this week I'm honored to have SRA survivor and educator, mother, wife, author, woman of God, podcast host and author of Only God Rescued Me, my journey from satanic ritual abuse, and one of my personal heroes and somebody I'm lucky to call a dear friend, the one and only Lisa Meister back on the show. I had the great honor of meeting Lisa and her amazing husband, Patrick, in person over a lovely dinner recently, and it was not only a highlight of my year, but of my life. Every guest I've had on the show, I've only had the honor of meeting remotely, and it's so unbelievably special to me that I got to meet the Meisters in person. They are and were even more special in person than I knew them to be from a distance. If you've been following the podcast the past couple of years, you know that Lisa has been a frequent guest on the show with four appearances to date. And on this episode, I'm eternally grateful to also introduce to you today, SRA hero, husband, father, man of God, fierce pr protector, professor, SRA and child abuse advocate, and Lisa's amazing, incredible husband, Patrick Meister. When I first met Lisa, I was so shocked and devastated at what she was talking about regarding her past that I dove into all the interviews and YouTube videos I could find she had done. And in the process, I came across a video featuring her husband, who stood up in front of a crowd and spoke about Lisa in the most compassionate, supportive, loving, and protective way. And I was just completely in awe of him for a number of reasons. Firstly, as someone who took on a role of listening to survivors speak about sad and traumatic things, Patrick inspired me so deeply and helped me understand how to be better as a podcast host and as a friend to my guests and survivor friends. Secondly, many survivors never had an example of what a healthy relationship looks like, and I believe seeing Lisa and Patrick's marriage is a true testament to what is possible for a survivor. And third, with the culture war waging against men and divine masculinity, Patrick truly is a role model to boys and men everywhere. And he's the type of man I wish and pray to see more of in the world and in this fight advocating for our children and for survivors. And for all these reasons and more, I was honored when he said yes to joining Lisa for this very special episode to discuss this very topic and how to support survivors in all phases of their discovery, disclosure and healing journeys. In a survivor's healing journey, the role of the husband, the friend, the listener, the therapist, and the shoulder to cry on cannot be understated in its importance. And I couldn't think of anyone else better to shine a light on this topic than Mr. Meister himself. So without further ado, it's my great honor to bring back and introduce to you two very special people in my life who we have so much to learn from, Patrick and Lisa Meister. 
Welcome to the show, you two. It's such an honor to have you. Thank you, Emma. It's an honor to be, to be on. So and, fun to be back and meeting for dinner. Oh, it was so much fun. Three hours went by in a blink. And if I Patrick know, I said, guys, it's getting night. really late, you never <laughs> quit talking, I don't think. I don't I know, know when our waiter even disappeared, but he was just gone. He was just gone. And thank goodness for Patrick kind of keeping an eye out on the time. He's like, uh, <laughs> and I was like, geez, it is getting late. We got to go. Yeah. They, they, they might have closed soon after anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I know, probably. But you guys, it's a, it's an honor. I just found out for people listening. Um, Patrick and Lisa have done interviews um, separately or in the same room. Uh, but this is actually their first time doing one together. So this is really extra special. And I didn't know that. So I'm really grateful that you guys came on today. And I'm going to link all of Lisa's previous episodes. So if you guys missed her story or anything we've done, you can go back and listen to that. Patrick, for people who may not have seen that really impactful interview series that I did that you were featured in, um, I'd love for you to give a little bit of context of your background and your story. Okay, well, um, from Indianapolis, and that's actually where we live now. Um, I came to know God when I was about nine years old at a vacation Bible school. And uh, before that, you know, sometimes as like a little kid, I'd get in trouble and had a little anger management problem, some reasons to have anger. Um, my life growing up wasn't all that great, there were some good things, but some other hard things. And um, so, you know, I'd be angry and sometimes not control it very well and get in trouble. And I, you know, especially around Christmas time, looking at the manger scene in the house and things like that, just wonder why I couldn't control the anger. Not that I did anything horrible, but I get in trouble. And um, I just knew there was something wrong on the inside of me where I couldn't control it, I needed help. And so, you know, I'd think about sitting next to the manger scene, think about Jesus coming and um, Jesus Lord at his birth and um, knew I needed help. And about when I was nine, I gave my life to him and accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And things started to get better. Uh, I still had to learn things, but I knew I was different on the inside and I knew I had what I needed, the ability to overcome the anger management problem and other problems because he changes his people on the inside. And so growing up, I, you know, developed some interests. I liked math and music. Uh, when I got to high school, I fell in love with economics. I had a course in high school and they had a video series where they showed problems if prices are set too low by the government, price ceiling and things like that. Just all fascinated me a lot. And so the math and the interest in economics went together. Oh, rewind a little bit. Uh, around that time when I was nine, 10 and 11, uh, the United States had high inflation, kind of like we do now. And I was wondering, you know, why prices were increasing so fast. A little kid, future economist that I was, um, was to become, uh, that fascinated me. So... Also, when I was about 11 or 12, I started playing guitar and developed a passion for that. And so to this day, you know, if you look at my bookshelf, you'll see Bible, guitar books, and um, economics books 
And I also like some vintage sports. So you'll see some football books and baseball books and things like that. So those are my main interests. Well, I went to Butler University in Indianapolis and got an undergraduate economics degree, took a lot of math uh, to complement it, and uh, then went to grad school to get a PhD in economics and eventually become a professor like I am now. And while I was at Michigan, my second year there, Lisa was a freshman and I met her in her church group. Um, so we talked some at first and eventually, not right away, but eventually some interest um, in dating came around. And so that's how we met in our church group at the University of Michigan. So I was becoming a teacher. Also, as I said, some things in my life were, you know, kind of hard. Saw some people get mistreated. Sometimes I got mistreated. And so I think what God did with me was he showed me that it's important for me to try to be helpful. So teaching, I try to help people learn. Uh, people that are hurting, I try to help them as much as I can. Um, point them to God, talk to them, be compassionate, things like that. So God did all that work in me to try to help me be that way. So I didn't know all of Lisa's problems when I met her, but um, I saw that she had very low self self-worth, self-esteem. And it seemed, I give her a compliment on looking nice or something and you could tell it wasn't going in at all. She didn't believe it at all. Overall, I told her back then, I thought her self-image was maybe just a slightly above that of a street person because she was just kind of, couldn't receive any compliments really. And so I didn't know if you wanted more than that or if that gets you up to speed to this point. Yeah, that's that's really great. I think it's amazing, you know, how God brought you guys together. You both had such different upbringings, you know, and it's amazing that you guys were even in the same place at the same time to me. It's a, such a blessing. Now, you gave a little bit of context on, you know, what what you thought about Lisa at that time. Looking back, were there any telltale signs that you can think of that maybe you're like, oh, that was kind of, you know, weird that she said that or did that? Yeah, for sure. One, the incredibly low self-esteem because she was and is lovely and she's smart, uh, accomplished. Um, I found out she got all conference shortstop in softball and I was amazed because I was never a award-winning athlete or anything like that. And she just kind of put it down while I was in a small school and things like that. I said, Lisa, you were all conference shortstop. That's a big deal. Uh, she didn't seem to see it that way at all. So the low self-image, very low self-image, compliment on her looks, her accomplishments didn't seem to go in at all. Yeah, that was, that was very odd. And then she told me that when she, I don't know how it came up, but when she was maybe four, she remembered her dad showering with her. Now, when somebody says something like that, visual image comes up, not of any body parts, but just a general visual image. Um, and I was horrified. I was like, no, no, you don't do that. The dad and his daughter, four years old, both of them, no. You know, 
And so I was horrified by that. So yeah, I was really, that was a big red flag. And putting the two together, the low self-esteem, some stories about things her parents had said to her. And um, yeah, those were early red flags that something is, something easily could be very wrong here. I think that topic's important too, because that's, you know, we're not taught to be aware of telltale signs of this stuff, you know, and a survivor like Lisa that didn't at the time have memories of what she went through, that can be, you know, if she's completely unaware of it, it's definitely going to be a lot harder for somebody on the outside to be able to maybe pick up on some of those things, unless you're really close with them. Right. You know? And so I appreciate you talking about that because I really think we need to get better when we're talking with people to have that compassion and <clears throat> not that we're necessarily, again, going to know if somebody's talking about, you know, if they, if they're an abuse survivor in any type of way, but just to have that awareness that anybody that's sitting in front of us, you know, you, that was probably the, what you ended up learning about Lisa was probably the last thing you ever expected to learn about her. And here she is in front of you. You know, right. so I think when we treat people like that, it really does make that experience for them easier if they're going through something consciously or battling something unconsciously that hasn't come to the surface yet. Now, right. you, had you ever heard about SRA before Lisa started remembering it? Well, a little bit. So I didn't watch movies a whole lot in grad school because you're crazy busy studying, wondering if the next test is going to be the end of your academic career if you don't do well on it. Uh, PhD programs have a lot of, well, undergrad has a lot of stress. PhD programs have a lot more stress, I found out from experience. The way I like to tell people is uh, graduate programs have a way of kicking you in the rear end. And um, so, you know, I didn't watch a whole lot of movies, but sometimes if I was eating, I might be passing through the channels. Uh, I had a roommate that wanted cable, so we had cable, TV back when that was more of a thing. Um, and so I remember seeing a part of a movie just passing through uh, called Dragnet. It was a remake of the old TV series, Dan Aykroyd and Tom Hanks were in it. And I didn't see much of it, but they depicted a ritual setting where a young lady in some sort of white gown or something was about to get abused. Like I said, I didn't watch the whole thing. I was passing through the channels and saw little bits of it. And so, yeah, it's, it's been depicted in movies. I'd seen something like that. And then, of course, in the Bible, they talked about um, people up in the groves, in the hills, in the trees, having ritualistic type sacrifice of children. So I knew of that sort of thing. Yeah, I think for me, too, looking back now, I can say I've definitely been exposed to it in entertainment. Yeah. You know, but it's just such a shame that really the only time you see anything like that is when it's disguised as fiction. It implants this thought in your mind that it's not ever real, you know, that something like that's not real. Right. Well, one thing I, I take from that, and I tell people now if I get a chance, uh, or I would tell people but if in the future also if I get a chance, is that art kind of imitates life rather than, I mean, some people like to say it the other way around but most artistic ideas don't come out, don't come from nowhere. So if it's depicted in a movie, it's should be considered unlikely that it doesn't exist in the real world. 
That's a really good point. And something I really wish that people would grasp more of, you know, because like I said, it, it really does a disservice for things that are real in the world that we're just, you know, we, we hear the word fiction and it's just this embedded belief that, oh, it's just fiction. It's just fiction, you know, and I think we miss out on a lot of opportunities, not just to learn about the world, you know, but to actually be able to be compassionate for people who go through these really real, real things. Yes. And Lisa, I'd love to ask you, what were your thoughts of Patrick whenever you first met him? And what was going into that situation like on your end? Patrick had a great sense of humor, which I greatly enjoyed. And he was very knowledgeable about the Bible. So we would talk, something I was reading, I would bring it up to him and he had already read it and had thought through it and would have a lot to say. And I love that. I wanted somebody who was very, very interested in following God, not just passive about it. We're not going to just show up at church or show up at our Christian group, but he was very serious about going after God. Now my family showed up at church and I certainly wasn't aware of how they were just hiding out, but I knew they weren't living it at home. So I was sure going to make sure that whoever I was going to go after was going after God with everything he had. And I saw that in Patrick and I greatly admired it. And he was really going after truth in the word of God. And I liked that in him too. And he would sit and talk to me about hours for hours. And it wasn't just him talking. It was, he wanted to know what I thought about stuff. And I'd never encountered that in a man before, ever. So I had been around narcissistic men most of my life. And you know how they like to tell you the way it is and tell you how smart they are and how stupid you are. And you just are here to go get me my drink and go turn the TV channel. And, you know, you're here to cook and clean and that sort of stuff. And Patrick wanted to know what I thought about a whole variety of things. And it was really amazing. Just like, wow. So more, more I got to know Patrick, the more I admired him. And still to this day, the more, you know, we're still, we've been married, what, 31 years mm-hmm. now. The more I get to know him, still the more I admire him. It's just been a, we still talk for hours on end and don't run out of things to talk about. And I like that, you well, know, and that's the way it should be. I think one thing that a lot of people miss is one of the joys in life is visiting with people who are kind, decent and willing to spend time with you and getting to know them and caring about how each other's doing back and forth. So um, that's, that's an incredible joy in life if people can really embrace that. And I was able to do that with Lisa. She was kind and decent and wanted to get to know me and mutual caring back and forth and talking back and forth and getting to know each other. So when I find that in a person, uh, it's especially valuable, and especially with my wife. Oh, I just love you guys so much. <laughs> it's really special. I think to both of you, you know, it's what you were able to see in each other. You know, Lisa might have been really down, and your sense of humor probably made her feel a lot better about life and about herself, you know, and I remember one story she told where her schedule was so crazy, she couldn't even fit spending time with with you into her schedule, you know, and I love that you guys were able to communicate that, you know, and and to try to help her navigate that, because 
that's really tough for survivors. Like I said in the intro, if you don't have an example of a healthy relationship and what that looks like, that can be really hard to navigate that when it actually is in front of you. And neither one of us had seen parents with a healthy relationship. Right. So it was a bit of trying to figure that out. A hundred percent. Now, Patrick, when Lisa was going through her discovery period and where she began disclosing and when you started to see those things happening within her and in just how she was acting, why did you believe her? When so many people, like I said, they could never wrap their mind around something like that being real. Right. Well, there are a number of reasons. So multiple factors. Uh, one is I remembered what she told me about her dad showering with her when she was four. Came to find out later, he inadvertently admitted showering with her when she was older. Um, he said, uh, I'll go to that real quick. Uh, this actually came later but I'll put it in here because I think it's important. Um, Lisa did confront him a couple of times and she had always remembered the showering. That was never a, a recovered memory. She always remembered that. And he said, oh, well, that was just when we were in a hurry. It was when you were young. I, you know, your younger brother wasn't old enough to shower. I'd run him through, then I'd run you through. Her younger brother is seven and a half years younger than she is. So he inadvertently admitted showering with her when she was maybe eight-ish, nine-ish. So without realizing, because he was talking off the top of his head. And so anyway, I was there when he said that. But back to the, uh, why did I believe it? I remember, um, well, I'll go ahead and tell you, she, we weren't quite asleep. And her first memory was she told me what she was seeing and feeling, and it was of a violent sexual nature sort of thing. And I knew Lisa had never watched any movies like that, didn't read any literature like that. Um, I'd gotten to know her dad, and he, you know, just didn't act right. He was pretty mean. Uh, he was... trying to isolate our then five-year-old daughter, our oldest, when he would play from her brother who was three at the time. We were still around, thankfully, but uh, that was really bothering Lisa. She even said that before she had the first detailed memory of sexual abuse. And so I knew that, yeah, the first time I met the fellow, her dad, Played, uh, went up to their place in Michigan, was playing basketball with her dad and Lisa's two brothers. And her younger brother at that time was 13, I think I was 26. And playing basketball, a 26 year old has an advantage over a 13 year old, unless the 13 year old is a prodigy at basketball or something. And so I'd get past him once in a while and get a layup. And every time I scored on this 13 year old boy, the dad would take him aside and scold him up one side and down the other. So that looked very weird. Uh, the first meal I had with him, he told his wife that was a good meal and she sneered at him. 
Lisa later told me he never complimented her on her cooking. And it's like, okay, there's a lot going on here. If a husband says, thank you, has a great meal, and the, and the wife sneers at him. So, so, so there are a lot of weird things. And so putting it all together, had no reason to doubt her. Uh, some people tried to say, like her parents tried to say, tell other people when she first confronted them that she got the memories in therapy. I was there. That didn't happen that way. I'd never been in therapy. No, so it came out spontaneously. Um, there's no way she could have made up any of the stuff. She had no reference. She didn't watch, like I said, she didn't watch those movies. She didn't read that kind of literature. Um, so putting it all together. I don't think I, I even it. knew what SRA was. You knew what it was. I don't think I knew what it was. Okay. If I remember correctly. Right. Yeah. And there were things that uh, her dad said over the years. So one was they, they had a, an acquaintance. I don't know if it was some friends and they had a daughter or a niece that accused him of sexual abuse. He told us this story. And they said, of course, this girl's always been a liar. And I'm thinking to myself, do you even know this lady? I don't, and they knew the, the parents or the uncle and aunt, whoever it was. They, I don't think they knew the lady. So they're just, he just said, oh, she's always been a liar. It's like, well, I thought to myself, well, how do you know that? I don't think I said that. But then he told me, he said, and I got Lisa's medical records in case anybody ever says anything like that about me. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I wouldn't do that because I don't do that sort of thing. And there's no threat of me ever being accused of that. I didn't say that to him. I just said at the time is before Lisa started remembering, said, well, just offhand, oh, Lisa wouldn't say anything like that about you. He says, oh, well, I know, but in case anybody else says anything like that about me. So I knew he had told me he had commandeered all of her medical records. And this was before, shortly before, how shortly, I don't remember exactly, relatively shortly before she started remembering explicit instances of abuse. And they kept coming, they kept coming. And they were very, and they're very detailed. Okay, so there's another, there's another thing. How could you get that much detail if you have no reference for it whatsoever? But all these other things too added up. I can't even imagine what that was like for both of you, you know, especially because of how detailed it was. And I would love, maybe this is a better question for, um, for both of you to answer, but I'd love to, to know Patrick, in your opinion, did, did Lisa believe what she was seeing? And then maybe Lisa on your end, you could explain what that was like for you on actually experiencing those memories and what that felt like, if it felt like something believable for you, I'm sure it didn't, but if it, you know, just kind of how that was emotionally for you going through that and trying to process what's emerging from your recall. Okay. Well, from my point of view, it did look like she believed it, but that she didn't want to believe it. So she did, but she kind of didn't want to. So we did go through a process where she did some looking back into her own, her own life, even going back up to where she grew up to talk to people, to look through things, ask questions to people that, whose names we had heard that were involved in this sort of thing or people that knew the people. 
And uh, so we actually did, Lisa wanted to do, and I, I did it with her, some background check into all of this. And there were many things that lined up with it quite well. I'll give you one instance in a second. But so she believed it. From my point of view, it looked like she believed it, but didn't really want to believe it, but then looked into it and confirmed everything. So there's no way all these things could happen and not be true. So one instance, they did have a name of somebody that was into occultic things that was involved in this sort of thing. And we found this lady's ex-husband in, in the town she grew up, this tiny town. Uh, talked to his daughter on the phone and she says, go talk to him. So we did knocked on the door, his wife or partner, whatever, I don't know if he was married or not, they were older, let us in, uh, like the back door, and there's like a little kitchen area, it's kind of a small house, and uh, Lisa said her name and her maiden name. Soon as he said, she said her maiden name, he looked at me in terror, like he thought I was going to beat the living, and I didn't have a mean look, I was just standing there. And so finally sat down and I don't know why they let us in, but they did. Started talking to us. Lisa asked him some questions and he says, yeah, my ex-wife was into some things like that. He tried to say he didn't know anything about the SRA type stuff. But then uh, early on, Lisa said that her dad had a certain business in town and he said, he gave the name of the place. And he says, oh, I don't know that business. And his wife's like, yeah, you do. It's where the subway is right now. He says, oh, I don't know any subway. There's one main drag in this small town. And their, their house is walking distance from this main drag in, in this tiny town. So he was, and then his wife or partner, whichever she was, said, yeah, you do. You've got his bookmark in the novel you're reading right now. She went to the next room, put this paperback novel down, pulled out uh, a bookmark, and it had her dad's business bookmark with his logo on it. Looked like an imp wizard kind of logo. He just stared at it. I mean, it was right there. So, he just stares at it. So here's this fellow lying through his teeth when he found out Lisa and who her dad was. Don't know this business, this prominent business in this tiny town on the main strip. I never heard of it. Yeah, you do. You've got his bookmark in the model you in your novel you're reading right now. Lady pulls it out and puts it on the little kitchen kitchen table. And so why would he look at me in terror when she gives her, her maiden name? Why would he pretend he never heard of this business? There's one main drag in this tiny town where the subway is right now, this walking distance from their house. And he did admit her interest in the paranormal, but obviously didn't, wasn't going to admit anything else. Uh, he did say that she had been caught having relations with somebody at the altar of the prominent church in town. Wow. That had to have been so crazy for both of you to go through that. Cause to me, I just feel like, 
it's this big snowball that just keeps rolling, you know, and you think, oh, is it going to stop here? And then, you know, it's these webs that are interconnected within these occult systems. Yeah. That's the part I think that really gets society twisted up too, is they can't fathom that this many networks and this many people collude to, to make something like that happen, you know, and then the levels of protection. Right. And I think that had to have been so wild just seeing that firsthand, you know, asking a question and then having the web expand to the answer being yes. And then asking another question. And then it just is starting to weave this picture together for both of you. Right. Oh, there's one other thing I wanted to bring up before Lisa started remembering things. Another stark thing that her dad said was that he said before we started going to the evangelical church they went to. Uh, he had experimented with occultic type things with a doctor friend of his. And he said, for instance, they got somebody, a medium or somebody to go to, I guess, the doctor's office to try to levitate a table. And I, and I said, well, did it float? And he says, well, it moved a little. And so I knew of his, some of his attempts in the occultic or paranormal or whatever you want to call it. Um, and again, that was before Lisa had explicit memories of sexual abuse. And so when I heard of the SRA type things, of course, I thought back to that, those kind of comments. Yeah, I could see how, not that it's easy to believe any of that, but you had so many things happen prior to that, that just seems so off that it probably didn't seem so shocking right. to hear about that part of it. Right. So you put it all together, there's no way it couldn't be, couldn't be true. You couldn't get all those memories with those kinds of details and all these other things happen. It'd be a much bigger stretch for me to have not believed it than to believe it. I mean, night and day kind of stretch. And when we look back too, we realized that my dad had been checking in with Patrick periodically through the years to see if I had told Patrick what had happened so this had been hanging over my parents head for a long time and I think like the when I was four I'd been born in Ohio they moved to Michigan where I was abused there and the minute we got engaged all of a sudden they sold his business they sold their house and moved back to Ohio it very interesting so the thought was that they were leaving the state so that if I press charges, they weren't in the state. See, because what, when you go to press charges, it has to be where the abuse happened. So actually when I did go and press charges, we could do it because the statute of limitations goes out of effect once you leave the state. So because they left the state, I could still file, which we did, but they immediately left at that point, which was very interesting because they didn't know that I'd repressed it. They had no idea. Mm -hmm. So periodically there were these bizarre conversations were happening with Patrick and my dad and going back, we're like, oh, that's what he was checking. He wanted to see if I told you. Yeah. Yeah. It made sense, which they were just bizarre conversations. Right. Or like that time with Jessica when you're watching oh, yeah. a TV show. Yeah, so there was a TV commercial 
uh, I forget exactly what it was. Maybe one little kid kissed another little kid or something just on the cheek or something, just kind of silly kid thing or something. And our oldest is Jessica. She was young at the time. And he just looks over at me. That's kind of like you and Jessica, right? And it's like, I wouldn't even think of anything like that. Why would you say that? It's not funny. And Lisa's younger brother said, well, I think it is. And I said, well, it's because you've been hanging around him too long. And I pointed to his dad. And then I said, besides, people who do that sort of thing are sick. And he just kind of looked down and said, yeah. So those sorts of weird conversations. And so we think he was, you know, did she marry somebody just like me? Or yeah. has you have you been talking about? Him? Or have you been talking to Patrick about what I did? So, yeah, just kind of weird. Well, that's why stuff. he got her medical records in case anybody ever said anything like that about him. He was worried about it. That's wild. That's again, you know, just and even for Lisa, like probably being used to that her whole life, having you there, kind of questioning things and saying did he just say that? Or did that just happen? You know, and, and making Lisa think about these things that were probably very normalized to her. Right. Now, Lisa, what did you feel when you started having memory recall? Was it something you believed right away? Was it something that took you a little bit of time or what, how did you feel whenever all of that was happening? It was so bizarre because when it first started happening, it felt like it was happening in the present. So like, I remember just like, felt like something was on my face. I remember like slapping my face, trying to get it off and, you know, kind of shrieking and Patrick was trying to calm me down. And, and it didn't, I didn't know about repression. I didn't know about dissociation. So I didn't understand if that happened, how do you not know it happened? Yeah, I'd like to interject real quick. I think I had heard of it somewhere before. And when she was doing that, I was with her the first time, like I said, we were not asleep, but getting close to it and uh, was holding her. And I just remember thinking to myself, oh no, here we go. Like something happened. Okay. So, so it, you know, it was a process for me. And at first it was just the sexual abuse in the home that was coming out. And that started in the end of January. I guess it was February. Started nightmares in January, February the flashback started by the summer I told Patrick I feel like I'm going crazy and I'm not fighting it anymore so we found a Christian outpatient clinic in Michigan so I went there and there's a psychiatrist so I went talked to him and I said I feel like I'm going crazy and I'm not fighting it and he said crazy people don't know they're going crazy so we took that off the table right there and then it was just couple months later that the SRA stuff started coming out, went back to him and, you know, cause you ping pong. And I think we've talked about this before. It's real. No, it's not real. It's real. No, it's not real. There's no way this could be real. And so, um, he said that, oh, I already knew you're an SRA survivor. Like how in the world would you know that? And he said, because the, the level of intensity of the sexual abuse that your dad was doing to you in the home was in the 90 something percentile of severity. And that only happens in SRA cases. So that had to be going on co concurrently. So 
And then shortly thereafter, she called the minister she used to go to their church to when she was between seven and 14 years old and ran that by him. And he said, oh, your dad used to be involved with a lady that was in town that was known as a witch. And that was the same lady that we told you about whose husband we talked to. So he knew of his involvement in cultic type things. So that was like one of the early confirmations uh, as far as looking into. So once we had, you know, that was enough validation that I just, I couldn't ping pong anymore. So then it was, all right, now I have to stop fighting and just put all my energy into healing at that point. Yeah. Uh, and then... Lisa got to the point where she couldn't accept calls from her mom and dad anymore. Her mom would call from time to time. We were in Indianapolis at the time. They were in a different state. And uh, I would answer the phone and say, well, Lisa's busy right now. And you could tell her mom was getting kind of really edgy that two or three times she didn't come to the phone because, well, you know, it's, she was busy. They have kids and taking care of kids and whatnot. Um, but I also knew Lisa wasn't up to talking. Lisa finally took a call and her mom was, Lisa told me later, her mom's into the conversation. And she said, Lisa, what, what's going on? And Lisa said, I'm starting to remember some things that I had never remembered before. No, I'm dealing with some things. Okay, dealing, okay. And I didn't hear, I heard the next thing I heard Lisa say was what never happened. So Lisa told me the in-between comment from her mom was, it never happened. So all Lisa had said was, I'm dealing with some things that I hadn't dealt with before. That's all she had said to her mom about this. And her mom said, it never happened. And Lisa's like, what never happened? And she changed the subject. She wow. said, if you think about it, you don't want your kids to be taken away. A little passive aggressive threat. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Absolutely. Wow. Now, Patrick, when she was going through all this, obviously this was really hard for her. She's experiencing these emotions like it's the first time all over again, the pain, all of the, all of the different memories that are just coming through and, and, and giving all of these different symptoms that she's living out in real time. What things did you do to hold her together emotionally? And were there any specific things that you did that you did or said to make her feel supported and believed while all this is going on? Yeah, I don't remember exact things I said, but uh, I held her when she cried. Um, I was affirming, you know, I told her some of the things I remembered. And so that let her know I believed her. Um, I helped out as much as I could. You know, I was busy teaching too, so I couldn't always help. But I'd help her when she was crying on the couch and things like that. Uh, help with the kids when I could. Um, try to I'd pray with her, of course, and um, try to encourage her that way. Um, so basically, that's that's about it. Spend time, hold her if she needs it. Um, Tell her I believe her, tell her why I believe her, talk with, talking with her about it really was the biggest thing. And then uh, my mom, 
uh, did help out somewhat and helped us look for some people to help her. So I threw in and tried to get her to the kind of help she needed. Like we told you about the clinic that she went to. My mom found that we took her up. I took her up there. Um, and so I just tried to be with her during all of it and did my best not to let her fight it alone. I'd read her journals when she, things were so bad, she couldn't uh, speak some of them. I'd read her journals and uh, they were harrowing. I try to prep myself and try to imagine the worst thing I could imagine before I would read her journal. And the things they did to her were far below the worst things I could think of. I mean, be just as lower than you can imagine. Uh, more twisted, more diabolical and sinister and damaging than you can imagine. Um, so I'd read her journals and try to get her what help I could try to help her get and try to be of support as much as I could. So I guess that's a good rundown. That's one of my favorite things that I love that you provided for her. I've heard her talk about how you would read her journals and that you never shied away when she had a memory. You never said, eh, I'm going to, I'm here for you, but I don't want to hear it. You know, no. you're always saying, I want to know all of it. I'll, I want to read all of it. I want to hear all of it. No matter how hard it is, I'm, right. I'm not going to shy away from what it is that you're going through. That's no. one of that's one of the most healing things for a survivor, I think, just from what I've seen is, first of all, being able to, to speak it somehow or write it, but then being able to have somebody on the opposite end of you sitting there holding space and loving you and, and being compassionate with you through it, even if you have nothing to say back, you know, just having somebody to to get this uh, information out of your body and to, yeah. for somebody else to hear it. That is so healing for a survivor, even if it's, you know, right in the midst of those moments where it doesn't seem like it's doing a lot. I feel like that's one of the most crucial points in this discovery period is just having somebody there that you can tell your story to. Right. Well, being a survivor, you know, when you're going through it, you have to go through it by yourself. So when you don't have to heal by yourself, that's nice. And one thing that was nice too is when you're healing, your house falls apart, especially when you have young kids. So there was destruction everywhere. And Patrick's thing was, I just need a path. You know, if I can come in, open the door and have a path to walk through. And there wasn't always even a path. No, no, not always. You know? So <laughs> he was good about it. You know, like there was days I was just crying on the couch. And that meant that the kids were deconstructing the house everywhere. Yeah. And you handled it. Yeah. Sometimes you have to buy dinner on the way home because there wasn't any chance to cook a dinner, which which is fine. That's not it's not a complaint. It's just was the reality. Reality and financially, it was a mess. That meant a lot of dinners. That meant a lot of food we bought got thrown out because it wasn't cooked. You know, it was the two weeks at that clinic were expensive. Yeah. Counseling in and out. Yeah. That was, you know, everything's expensive. Yeah. Nothing's paid for. Insurance then's like, oh, you guys are going through a rough time. Let us cover this for you. It doesn't work. No. You know, and churches don't understand. They're not going to come in and, you know, they don't, you know, nobody helps. Nobody gets it. Yeah. At all. So. Yeah, I, think, yeah. I think people miss the biblical principle sometimes. Weep with those who weep. There is a time for that. 
Uh, one thing I've heard from a lot of church folk, unfortunately, is they kind of assume anybody that's going through a hard time and not getting better quickly is somehow just kind of willingly staying mired in it. And yeah, there probably are a few people like that. But I think by and large, most people want to get better and maybe some people have no idea how. So step one for a church is to weep with those who weep sometimes. Like, you know, you got to listen to them and let them know you care. I think many people have lost that and need to get it back. And I've said before, it was, you know, it waved, but it was like 20 year process for us, mm -hmm. for me to heal, which certainly took way too long, but I was going after it yeah. with everything. You know, I mean, we just put everything we could into healing as fast as we could. It took that long. It just did. So I'm sure it looked like we, I'm sure it looked like I had a victim mentality. I'm sure it looked like I should have just been better. But I know from being with her all the time, that's not the case. In fact, even though she puts a 20 year time marker on it, it's still a miracle of the first degree that she's sitting here talking to you, given what she went through. So for instance, not for instance, uh, what's the way to say it? If I told you and your audience, some of the worst things she went to, y'all wouldn't sleep tonight. 100%. I know. I feel that way just from the little bit that I learned, you know, and that's why I think how you were saying, just being able to be a compassionate, willing ear and just sitting there with somebody, you know, we don't, it doesn't take a lot to be there for someone just listening to somebody or saying, I believe you, you know, Lisa has been such a big advocate on that sentence. You know, I believe you is the most powerful sentence that a survivor can hear. And sometimes that can make or break somebody's path and you know, how they continue healing. What yeah. ways did you two make this process a team process for healing? Yeah. Well, and it should be. Yeah. Unfortunately for most couples, it's not. And, and you guys couples it tears them apart and that's a problem that's that's a big problem you know we, we are, we've got a society of people that don't understand what compassion is they don't understand what true love is and they don't understand what really christianity is you know how do we have christian compassion if we can't even have it for our spouse, how can you claim to have it for anybody? Yeah. You just, you can't, you know, you, you we, it's not convenient to be with somebody while they're he emotionally healing. It's just very inconvenient in every way, shape or form. I mean, to work all day as a professor and come home to a house that's been completely blitzed by four kids, they're fighting, and there's no food and your wife's crying day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, and there's no end of this in sight. And oh no, here she's go. She's got another flashback again. It's not convenient. It's not fun. Yeah. But there is an end because 
God does heal. You know, we, we do move through it, but we can move through it way better if we can do it together. You know, if we, if we hadn't been to, you know, I've always said, I've been blessed to have Patrick, but not everybody is every, you know, not everybody has Patrick. And, but even then God gets people through, there is another side to all abuse. It doesn't matter what the abuse is. There is healing that can be had, but you got to work for it. Right. And if, if any of you out there are helping somebody like that, I really have to have a never quit attitude. Quitting shouldn't need to get to a point where that doesn't enter your mind. Dogged determination has to be there. And for me, it came from, uh, from God. I think he helped me. He, he helped shape me that way in my life. Uh, even from simple things like a kid, when sometimes I'd try to take on two people, one versus two in basketball and play to 100 and, you know, I'd lose by, I'd lose, but I'd be fighting like crazy and just not quitting and things like that. Little things like that, I think God used to help me uh, learn. You just don't quit. And so God helped me be that way. What were some ways that you two found to make this a team healing experience for both of you? Um, talking about it a lot. Um, I didn't always cry in front of her, but some, sometimes I'd cry by myself. Um, sometimes I would feel like I had failed because I didn't run in and save her, and which of course I couldn't have because I didn't know her when she was uh, going through it. Uh, but, you know, somebody who wants to take care of somebody, as spouses do, um, just the feeling was, not, I know it's not rational, you feel like, well, why didn't I step in and save her when it's an irrational feeling because I couldn't have, I didn't know her. But um, to tell her things like that, so just talking about it a lot is a big part. And uh, trying to encourage her with Bible verses that are encouraging and talking about healing of the brokenhearted, like in Isaiah 61, Jesus said he came to do that, um, came to heal the brokenhearted and bind up their wounds. Um, in second Timothy, uh, says God's not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. And that actually means a healed mind it means be whole, do well. So we talk about it a lot, pray about it, uh, go over Bible verses, promising healing. And, uh, we've stuck in there on that together. He never said, come on, Lisa, pull it together. You know, it was never um, shaming me or making me feel bad. It was um, compassionate, listening, never trying to just fix it. You know, just sometimes they're just sitting with me, you know, just holding me yeah. and not expecting them to fix it. I think it was big. I don't need you to fix this. And sometimes I think some survivors do, you know, I need you to fix this for me. Or, or when he would say, I would have, if I'd have known, I would have come in and taken you out. That was healing. You cared enough. You love me enough that you, you know, nobody else would, but you would have, you know, that was nice to, you know, that's nice to hear. That's heroic. 
to me to hear those sort of things or to the kinds of reactions when you would hear what happened or read what happened. You know, that's always, you know, it's, it's just healing in and of itself. Yeah. I should throw in, I don't, I will admit I didn't do everything perfectly, um, but I tried. So. Well, that's, that's unfamiliar territory for anybody, you know, especially if you haven't personally gone through it, it's taken me personally, you know, a long time to wrap my mind and I don't know how you can ever understand something like this, Right. but it's so out of comprehension for anything. Like you said, Patrick, I could try to dream up and imagine the worst things or watch the scariest movie and nothing can prepare you for what you hear from somebody like Lisa, what they actually went through. Right. Even if you think you're prepared, you know, there's just no way to even grasp how something like this is happening, why it would happen. And there's so many questions that arise whenever you're learning. So for you to just be there, you know, and to, to sit there with her, knowing that you're going through some things too, with all yeah. of this, trying to process it yourself. I think that's amazing how you were both able to come together through something that was so foreign, even to Lisa, you know, it was more familiar to her, I'm sure, because she's experiencing the actual memory. But even still, she wasn't conscious of it. So she's experiencing it for the first time and learning about it with you, you know? Right. right. Uh, Lisa did good, did well, too, because um, some things uh, you see other people go through might touch sore spots in your own life. And it did for me. And Lisa would uh, talk to me about those things, too. So she had the uh, beautiful quality of giving, even though she could have just been receiving because she is so wounded. So appreciate that. It's got to be give and take. And I, it, it's easy just to become a taker when you're so needy, but you can't give into that. And I, I think too, it's fair to say, you know, like Patrick would say, what do you need? And, you know, sometimes I could say, I need to sleep. I am so tired. I, you know, a lot of times after a flashback, you just have to go sleep for a while. But sometimes you just don't know. Like, I don't know what I need. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's part of the communication that has to go on. Sometimes, you know, and sometimes you just don't know. Yeah. Sometimes it's just time it's going to take on both sides. Right. And sometimes you just, you know, struggle with each other for a while. You know, it, it's not easy on either side to get through it. And that's okay, too. But... You know, I, I think Patrick's thing of, I, you gave that interview in, in that, I think the most powerful thing that you said was, you don't leave your post. Right. And that was his, and I knew he wouldn't. And that really helped me that I could fall apart because I knew he was going to hold it together for both of us. Yeah. yeah you got to stay, stay the course. You make promises on your wedding day. To me, you keep them. Um, and you love somebody, you give for them. Uh, and quitting in any way shape or form whether it's not listening or some people have left all sorts of things some people have cheated etc you just don't do those things it shouldn't enter shouldn't enter the mind just dig 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 lean on god um and so yeah never leave your post i love that especially because lisa was left by everybody you know she never had a post right. so i also think it's really beautiful that while she's at her most vulnerable 
breaking through all this trauma and recognizing, gosh, I, I didn't have anybody in my life that was opposed. She's learning on the opposite end through you that it's, that it exists, even though she's learning that it, it didn't in her past, she's, you know, learning through you kind of the things that are falling apart. She's receiving them in you. And I think that's also a really beautiful thing about, you know, you guys doing this together. Yeah. And again, I, I thank you very much. And I also, you know, I've said it before, but I lean on God for that because going back to when I was a kid and had anger management issues and was dissatisfied with that and knew I couldn't fix it, needed God to fix it. Um, God showed me those things. He helped me do those things um, to his glory, any good thing I've done. And again, it's only God rescued me. It's not Patrick rescued me. Right. You know, he helped both of us get through what we needed to get through yeah. to get here. And, you know, God certainly put Patrick with me to help me through, which I greatly appreciate. Right. I'd like to throw in on her book title, Only God Rescued Me. Um, I'm sure you've talked about it before, but just to remind people, somebody might say, well, she didn't get rescued out of the midst of it during, when it was happening. But two things. One is the ultimate design of that sort of abuse and really any sort of abuse uh, from the forces of darkness side is to separate people from having a relationship with God. And so that was their ultimate goal and they failed because Lisa has a relationship with God. So God rescued her from giving in to their ultimate design to separate her from God. The secondary thing is she also is rescued from it in that she's not going through it now. And both, well, both are important, both are equally important, but it is true that nobody ran it. I didn't run in and rescue her when she was 14, for instance, I, I didn't know her, nobody did. But God rescued her from the ultimate design of it to separate her from God and to destroy her. And she is now not going through it as well. She's Nor our kids. kids. Nor our kids, yes. That's beautiful and so true. You know, that's that's something that I look at people like Lisa and every guest that I've had, even you, Patrick, you know, you're all walking miracles. The fact that you're able to be an angel for her and be somebody that God divinely placed in her life and vice versa. I know you two both met for a reason. You guys make such a beautiful couple. Thank but you. I just love how those little things, you know, they can impact somebody so much to have that strong person that shares their faith and their beliefs. And I'm sure you kept Lisa's faith really strong too while she was going through everything because it's so easy, you know, you have the wrong guy, just like what Lisa's book says. It's really easy to judge God when you're going through something hard and having that pillar of faith there and somebody who's able to remind you and say, no, God never left you. You know, that's also so reaffirming for somebody going through something so tumultuous emotionally. Absolutely. And Patrick, you know, one of the things that, that we talk about a lot on the show is, I guess, primary PTSD, trauma, but what we don't talk about a lot and what I think is really important is the secondary PTSD or trauma. How did that impact you when you were watching her go through her trauma? What was the impact that seeing that with somebody you love so much 
how did that impact you emotionally? Yeah, I, I mean, obviously it did at the time. I probably couldn't have put it, my finger on it and explained it and couldn't have answered it back then probably. But in retrospect, maybe I can answer it. Um, probably in multiple ways. First of all, um, if one has any empathy at all, which I believe God's given me, um, you feel for the person because you can you practically imagine what would that have been like if it had been me what must you know picturing again not details but a little girl with that kind of stuff happening to a tiny little girl and teenager when they get older and all that it's absolutely horrifying so uh, you, you feel it not quite as if you go through it but in your imagination you can feel some of it if you're imagining what that would be like for that person and what if it were me. Uh, so it messes with your head, yeah. Um, I probably didn't get as much done as I would have gotten done because there's a lot of head noises when, when you're going through that. Um, I think what the, the thing I mentioned earlier about wishing I would have been there to stop it or feeling mad at myself because I didn't stop it when of course I couldn't have, I knew it was illogical, but the feelings were there. Hey, dude, you didn't do your job. The feeling was there. You know, you let somebody down in the worst way. It felt that way. So I think that might be something that maybe you could call secondary trauma. Um, and I, I think I mentioned it earlier too, it touches nerves on one's own hurts, my hurts too, and can make those feel more raw as well. Um, yeah, you have cry. to, yeah, go off and cry by myself, have to deal with anger and remind yourself, not that I ever, I didn't ever seriously consider in getting revenge or anything, but I'd be lying if I told you that the thought never crossed my mind. Um, but I, but then, you know, quickly, thankfully, the word of God comes in and says, God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So that's not my place. So I didn't, that's, those sorts of thoughts didn't get anywhere, thank God. But you have, you know, I had to deal with the anger too. And uh, so, yeah, I think those, those are ways um, that I felt secondary trauma. And there's going to be some feelings of helplessness because you can't fix it. You know, you can't just say, not that I pretended I could, but it would have been nice if I could have said, hey, let's just do this and fix it. But I knew I couldn't. So you, there's a feeling of helplessness when you don't want somebody to suffer like you, like I saw Lisa suffering and wish she had never gone through it. It's It's not easy hearing these stories and knowing that you know you knew lisa as an adult but you have kids you know you had children at the time mm -hmm. so it's like you're seeing these you know beautiful little kids running around your house and realizing that too i'm sure that gosh this could have not that it, it would ever be but you know this could be my kids like my kids could have been born into a home like this or lisa could have married somebody else other than you and had children with somebody that kept her enslaved in that system. And those little kids could have been going through something, you know? So I think too, there's also probably that element that you went through just 
knowing her as an adult, but being reminded of how precious children are and like seeing that in your own kids even. Yeah. So um, it's gone through my mind many times in my life when you hear these things or anything like it, you never hurt a child. Just that should be one of life's biggest maxims for everybody. You never hurt a child. It shouldn't hurt anybody, but um, at the top should be you never hurt a child. Jesus, the Lord Jesus said, it'd be better for somebody to have a millstone hung around their neck and be cast into the sea than to hurt one of these little ones. I think it's hard too in secondary trauma. There's not room for you to go take care of yourself emotionally yeah. when you're giving everything to take care of the other person emotionally. Yeah. And that's hard. Yeah, certainly not the same thing, but I remember the original Mary Poppins movie where Dick Van Dyke, the chimney sweep, told uh, the kids that were kind of upset with their dad, who does he go tell his problems to? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. Was, I don't know. So when you said that, it kind of reminded me of that little scene in the movie. A hundred percent. Yeah. And I think that's an important topic to touch on just because that will be something if if somebody on the other end of this podcast is listening and has a friend, maybe that's disclosed to them something, or maybe in the future, they're going to have that happen. You know, we, I don't think are even prepared for that element either all the time of, okay, this is really hard to hear. And it's something that I would have never expected to hear something I can't even imagine. Mm -hmm. How is this impacting me? And how do I make sure that I'm healing myself? Yeah, I guess, yeah, that's something I probably didn't do enough. There were times where I did find somebody to talk to, either a friend or somebody, but um, somebody in ministry or whatever. So I did a little bit, but that's something, if anybody's going through that, they probably should do it more than I did. Because if you, you know, the more you can take care of yourself, compared to not doing much at all, um, the better you can help other people. So I probably could have been more effective if I'd talked to people a little bit more. I did some, but. To be fair though, in SRA, there's not a lot of people that can help the helper. Yes. Not to mention, I'm sure the information gets so sensitive. That's not really an easy topic that you can tell people and they're just going to believe you and support you. And you know, that it doesn't pose a risk if you accidentally say a name or, you know, there's so many boundaries and parameters, even to have that conversation with somebody. Yeah. Right. Yeah. How did your faith in God help you through what you were going through, Patrick? And could you have gotten through what you were going through without him? Um, no, I couldn't have. And I leaned on him all the way. I had to. Um, so I've always, in hard times and good times too, but in hard times, leaned on, you know, verses in the Bible about God's not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and love and sound mind. It's in, I wrote it down. So I would remember second Timothy two. Um, Jesus, the Lord Jesus said in John 14, 27, peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give unto you, not like the world gives, uh, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Um, I didn't try to encourage myself with the word of God for Lisa's healing heals the brokenhearted, binds up their wounds. Um, one of my favorite ones is in Psalm 103, um, crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. He redeems your 
life from destruction. So I'd pray those things. And so, yeah, I had to lean on God all the way for hope for her, faith that she would, in God, that he would help her. And to try to be able to show compassion myself and walk in that. So yeah, I needed to lean on him all the way. So yeah, you don't leave your post, but it's good to have, it's imperative to have strength to lean on. Yeah, God was your post. Yeah. And you named a couple scriptures that were really helpful to you. Are there others? And then I'd love to hear Lisa too, if she had some during that time that really helped her get through what she was going through. Yeah, Psalm 128 says, your wife will be as a fruitful vine by the sides of your house. Let me be careful. That's old, old English. It doesn't mean your wife should be beside your house. <laughs> a fruitful vine beside your house means she's flourishing. And your children, like olive plants round about your table, it means flourishing. So it hold on to promises like that. You follow God and he'll take care of you. Um, by Jesus, by the Lord Jesus stripes, we are healed. And I believe healing applies not just to physical body, but emotions too, because he said, I came to heal the brokenhearted and bind up their wounds in Isaiah 61. Um, so those are some of the key verses I went over. Um, how, again, in um, okay, second, second Timothy, Chapter one, he says, he's not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. Uh, that means a healed mind. The word healed in the original or in the Greek means be whole, do well. And so she needed brokenhearted being healed. She needed a sound mind. Uh, the Lord provides that. And so I'd lean on those passages, pray them over her, sometimes talk to her about them. Um, read them over myself to encourage to get encouragement from the Lord see what I liked about him in the first place his knowledge of the word comes in handy it well, really does well here, here's another thing too you know teach economics and I told you about having different books on my shelf and you'd see my interests on that um, it's easy for a Christian to say the Bible's the greatest book in the world but it really is it it's living it's powerful it's insightful it has insights on economics believe it or not medicine etc um, it's really the blueprint of how to live one's life and so there's no book like it not even close my second favorite book is called Micro Motives and Macro Behavior. It's a German economist turned social theorist named Thomas Schelling. It's a great book, by the way. But I tell people if uh, you're on a desert island, you have two books, the Bible and Micro Motives and Macro Behavior. But the Bible by far. So um, I, I had to lean on it because... If you're a professor, you want good books, right? Everybody should want good books, not just professors. But that's the key one. That's that's the one to have. Got us through. That's yeah. And what about you, Lisa? Were there scriptures that you can remember really helping you through that? 
There's one that says he'll give you beauty for ashes, strength for fear, joy for mourning, peace for despair. I'd go through that one over and over and over because that was certainly a mantra in my life back then. And then it says that God will make a way where there seems to be no way. And it says roadways in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. And that's what I needed because I could see no way to get through healing. I just couldn't see a way through it. They just didn't, it didn't make sense. Like it just didn't seem to be no end to the flashbacks. It didn't seem like there was going to be any end to the crying. It didn't seem like there was going to be any end to the nightmares or just to be the ability to have clear thinking, to be able to follow a crazy recipe for dinner. I mean, it was, I mean, just be able to clean the house. It just, I just didn't know how any of this was ever going to happen. And God, you know, did it. Like I would, like my, my girls even talk about it, that like we would homeschool and then we'd get done and I'd put on praise and worship music and clean the house. And it would, and I'd listen to the praise and worship music that would have the words of scripture to it. And uh, Don Moan had the song, God will make a way where there seems to be no way. And I would just sing it over and over and over because I knew that that was the answer. God had the answer that I needed. And I didn't need to know what what it was going to be. I just knew God was going to open it up for me. And he did. Yeah. And I still can't explain exactly how God did it. But one day, it, it, it's like you start looking back and all of a sudden, instead of 24-7, of the agony of, of going through all this. It's like, oh, we had a little bit of space where I didn't think about it. And then all of a sudden we'd have more space and then more. And then all of a sudden it was an hour of not thinking about it. Or I went a whole day without thinking about abuse or I went a week without it. And, you know, and it wasn't until you started looking back that you started realizing you were getting that space. And now it's like, wow. You know, if I wasn't, you know, doing this ministry sort of thing, I, I probably wouldn't be thinking of it hardly at all. Right. I mean, it's just, it's, it's wonderful and unexpected really to be, to, to be to this level of being okay. And that's why it's really good to be in this ministry, to be able to say to people, there is another side, you know, we're not doomed to the programming that they put in it to us. We're not doomed to dissociative disorders. We're not doomed to nightmares and uh, medical conditions that doctors aren't gonna be able to figure out. You know, it, we're gonna be okay because God can do that for us. And if he does it for me, he can certainly do it for you. And, and with you, Lisa, not only have you come so far with your healing to I mean, you're a walking miracle, but the fact that you're able to talk about this so much right now, and not only that, but now you're taking other people's stories and listening to them and holding space for other people who have gone through this on top of what you've gone through. You know, if that doesn't inspire people on the other end of this to see what's possible, I don't know it will, but I love that about you. I love that you've taken your experiences and I love that you've healed enough to where now you're providing and giving people those tools on the other end of your screen, you know, and of your phone and of your social media platforms. And you're carrying all of that with such confidence, you know, and 
if somebody didn't know your story, they'd never know that you went through any type of abuse with how you're able to, to be so strong in your own convictions. Yep. That's very, that's wonderful. Now we can do it together too. Yeah. And you, you're helping us do it together. So thank you. <laughs> Teamwork. That's awesome. that's right. Which is why it's so exciting to meet you because we do it together. You and, know, it's. And it's she awful. even picked a restaurant that was walking distance from the hotel we were staying at. <laughs> <laughs> and she, and she, literally she walking distance it was like right across the street yeah. <laughs> we're walking over there i'm like patrick my feet hurt so bad i don't think i'm gonna make it you're gonna <laughs> carry me <laughs> now patrick lisa mentioned uh her mantra did you have any mantras when you were going through this uh when i was going through it let me think Probably just some of those scriptures I mentioned, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, um, your wife shall be as a fruitful vine by the sides of your house, meaning flourishing. Um, later, I told myself, never leave your post. I don't know if I thought that phrase during that time. I'm sure I thought that way, but I don't think that was a mantra or anything at the time. I think it was more the Bible verses giving me courage and hope. Um, that, you know, just a belief that things would get better. And weeping lasted more than a night, but there's a Bible verse that says weeping may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And um, our application of that was, well, it will come, maybe not tomorrow morning, but um, so the, those sorts of things, I think. So just leaning on the Bible verses that I'd mentioned were probably something like a mantra because I would go over them think about them, sometimes say them or pray them, uh, talk to them, talk to Lisa about them. Um, uh, there's some other ones uh, in Isaiah 54, in righteousness you will be established, you shall be far from oppression for you shall not fear and from terror for it shall not come near you. So, so yeah, the Bible verses in essence were various mantra, mantras. One question that I wanted to ask, because I think it's amazing you both navigated this together. How did you both decide as a team the best course of action to take with Lisa's family members after learning about all of this? Oh, actually, can I back up one minute? I did think yeah. of one mantra that I uh, probably, I'm almost sure I did tell myself the old Winston Churchill quote, never give in, never, never, never give in. So I, I remember thinking that to myself okay but anyway I love that quote yeah uh they were criminally unsafe my family I mean they just were and you just can't have anything to do with them now they originally kicked us out I mean we we went to confront or talk or whatever you want to call it originally and uh immediately um, they quit sending birthday cards, Christmas, everything to my kids. They were just, we were out. They immediately contacted all the extended family on my mom's and dad's side so that everybody knew, which I did not expect that. I mean, I mean, they immediately went into attack mode. So yeah. we were ousted. 
immediately I started getting attack letters from aunts and uncles and cousins and it was just fire right away but you just you can't I mean you just cannot do that you have to be a wall for your kids they would have done it to our kids they were you know that originally it was my dad grooming my daughter which is what started the whole problem with me in the first place which caused all the repression and dissociation to start breaking down to let the memories come out, they would have done it to them. And you can't allow that to happen. So in an SRA family, you have to cut it off. You don't know who's safe. You don't know who's not safe. So you just have to cut everybody out. You just have to. And the children come first. And that's so important. How many families, I mean, and, and this could be any level of abuse, but that's really hard for people. They get embarrassed about, well, we can't talk about that in the family, you know, and just cover it up or just deal with it. Or we'll talk about it between just us, but don't tell other people. And yeah. I think you guys are so validating with your decision because I think a lot of people, you know, your family ousted you, a lot of people get pressured over and over and over and over and over and over again to come back into the family, you know, and you might have too, but understanding that it's okay to cut ties can be very powerful and can make a huge difference, if not life or death in, you know, your healing process and in your life. Yeah. People have a right to protect their, their own and themselves. Uh, I think some people, misunderstand certain things in the bible about turning the other cheek that doesn't mean you have to accept extreme abuse or any abuse really um what i've heard about that is what that particular passage is talking about is somebody maybe relatively lightly slapping somebody on the cheek to show disrespect and then it says turn the other cheek you know don't sweat over little things like that uh I don't see anything in the Bible about people accepting abuse. I know Jesus did because he sacrificed for our sins. And yeah, there are passages in the Bible about persecution. Some people don't like it if we talk about Jesus. But I don't think, I don't see anything in the Bible that says somebody has to stay into in, in the midst of an abusive family situation. I don't see that as a biblical concept as all, at all. Uh, King David, before he was king, ran for cover when people were chasing him. Um, and you don't have to let it happen to your children either. The children come first, and people do have a right to protect themselves if they can from abuse. A hundred percent. I couldn't agree more. And Patrick, what do you say to spouses that might just be getting started out in a sense on you know, having a wife or a husband that's going through SRA recall, going through trauma. What do you say to somebody that's in your shoes as the spouse that's experiencing it from the outside to somebody who's just starting out on that journey with their spouse? Okay. Um, sure. Show your love, walk it out, prove it, be help, get help help them get help, uh, never, never give in, lean on God all the way, you're going to need him, and he's more than able, and never leave your post, and get into the word of God on 
Bible promises of healing and lean on it all the way. Beautiful and so powerful. And what about to spouses who have been on this journey? Maybe it's been a week, maybe it's been a year, maybe a month, maybe a few years. What do you say to spouses going through something like this or something really hard with their spouse and they're they're just getting weary and getting tired? Um, it's a good question. One, never, you know, never leave your post, never give in, but you can draw strength from God. Um, he'll uphold us with his right hand. Um, he will renew your, he will re renew your strength. You can mount up with wings as eagles. You can run and not be weary, walk and not faint. I believe that's in Isaiah. Um, and don't forget to, if there is a chance to enjoy something in life, go ahead and enjoy it, whether it's a beautiful sunset or a time where things aren't so crazy, uh, enjoy time with your spouse where there are moments where you can do that, um, Find somebody to talk to that is encouraging and will help you stay the course. Um, and build yourself up in faith that things will get better. And, 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 oh. and make sure you don't forget, you love your spouse, you walk it out. That's awesome advice. And what about you, Lisa? Do you have anything to add to that? Just knowing from your end, things that helped you or any little advice that you would give to somebody in Patrick's shoes? Just remember that it's not forever, that there is a healed side to this and that no matter how tired you get, that you're doing the right thing and that you are a hero and heroes do get tired and it's okay and that you need to do things that will refresh you. Patrick was a guitar player. Yeah. So you'd go off and play your guitar. Yeah. And that was a good thing to do. Yes. So you need some of those things for your little space for yourself. Right. That you can go off and have that. Yeah. Um, and to know that you're important. You're a very important part of the healing journey for your spouse. And to remember that sometimes you might feel like you're nobody. You know, I, I think sometimes I probably made you feel that way, but that you're very, very important and very seen and very needed and that you're appreciated. And that when you're at the other side, that you really have no idea who your spouse is because your spouse doesn't know who they are yet. And that'll be fun to figure out together. We're having a lot of fun right now. Yep. We went to Oklahoma where we met you on the way. We had all this time just to talk. It's like, whoa, we've never had this. This is amazing. Yep. That's right. So you've got time to come where you're going to have that marital space that you've never had. And that's a delight. And, and it's wonderful. Yeah, and if somebody feels like it's taking too many years or something, don't forget uh, one of the verses or the Bible passages I talked about was Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, um, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and forget not all his benefits. One of them is he renews your youth like the eagles. 
<laughs> at my age, that's a, that's a verse I lean on quite heavily. <laughs> well, so like we've been married 31 years and I think we're in a better place in our marriage than we've ever been because both of us have healed. I mean, you've had things you've had to heal from too. Yeah. And it's just a nice place to be. Yeah. It's, you know, so there's good things to come yeah. and look for that. And not that trauma is ever a good thing that we want to go through, but it is really amazing that after, you know, when the storm blows over a little bit, the things that you remember about trauma, a lot of times are who helped you get through it, you know, and once the emotions are kind of gone and, and you can step back and say, gosh, I feel night and day from what I did then you can, I think what we remember a lot of times is who was there for us, you know, and that's a beautiful time, I think, to build a relationship and to get closer with somebody is th through the hard times. Anybody can go through good times, you know, but it, it really builds relationships in a different way when you can come out of the other side of something that seems impossible to get through in the moment and you're still standing there together. Yeah, that's a good point. There are silver linings, even though, like you said, nobody wants to go through that, nor is it God's design. It's not, but that doesn't mean good things can't come out of it. Yeah. And like Lisa said, you're in a better place now, you know, who knows, not to say you wouldn't have a great marriage, but after you guys literally know every little thing about each other, you know, in a different way than a lot of people do. And I think that that's, you know, a great lesson too for relationships is that communication piece you guys really showcase how having that deep communication, talking for hours, making it fun when you can, but also knowing when to be serious and, and to be honest and open and vulnerable, how all those things really pay off, no matter the extent of, of the difficulty that you're going through. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And I'm just grateful for you too. I think Patrick, you're, you're just an angel on this earth. Like I said, you're such an amazing role model and somebody I'm so honored that I finally got to meet I've been admiring you since I watched that interview when I first met Lisa. So I'm really grateful that I got to meet you over dinner nonetheless. And Lisa, you are a hero in yourself. You carry the weight of the world on your shoulders and give everything that you have to making the world a better place and to helping people. And you're, you're just amazing. You know, I think the absolute world of you and I love you to pieces. And I'm so honored that I've got to meet you through this. I wish it were under different circumstances. I wish we could have met under a really happy topic, but it's my hope that this, this hard situation will lead to some really beautiful and bright things in the future that we can be really proud that, that we're doing, you know, and that we can look back and, and see that it was actually a really beautiful journey instead of it being such a dark thing sometimes. So I just want to thank you for shining a light on all the darkness, making it palatable for people to understand something so hard and for devoting your heart to giving other people a voice, giving a voice to children and to helping survivors feel heard. And especially from understanding that internally, what that feels like to be a survivor yourself. So I just want to thank you both for coming on such an honor. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for having us, Emma. It's fun to do it together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to do it again. <laughs> Thank you. And thank you for what you do, giving people a voice. I know, because you stepped into this, you didn't have to. I mean, you stepped into the worst evil stuff and you learned about it and you soaked yourself into it because you wanted to and because you wanted to make a difference. That's so heroic in my heart. And you're so nice and so sweet in doing it. 
you're just amazing. Thank you a lot. So we, we appreciate what you're doing very, very much. Well, I hope other people listening, you know, once you do understand this, I don't know how you can't want to do something about it. You know, I know you feel that too, Patrick. So, I mean, I, I hope that other people on the other end too feel that same feeling inside of them that they want to do something with this. Now, where can people find both of you? I'll link your, all your social media stuff, but if you just want to list that off real quick where people can connect with you. Only God Rescued Me um, podcast, Instagram, Facebook. You can find me. Yeah. I haven't really posted a lot about this, but I'm on Instagram at prof.meister. It's M-E-I-S-T-E-R. Thank you both so much for coming on. It means the world to me. Is there anything else that you want to say before we wrap up today? We love you, Emma. Really appreciate appreciate what you do. Uh, I appreciate you guys too. And for everybody listening, I'm going to link all Lisa's stuff below. I'll link Patrick's uh, Instagram link below. Please go connect with and support them. It would mean the world to me and to them. And I appreciate you guys listening. It means the world to me that you guys support survivors and their heroic spouses like Patrick on this show. And I will see you guys next week. And God bless you all.